most Australians don't eat venison, to be honest. Um, they, they may have tried it once or twice in a restaurant or they may have tried it overseas. But because we, we don't have a strong legacy of, of hunting deer and, and really eating that seasonally, for a lot of people it's, it's new. And trying to convince someone who's never tried it to order like a 10 kilo box of frozen meat on our website is a bit of a proposition. This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. We were once hunter-gatherers. If you wanted to eat meat, you had to catch and kill it before you could cook and eat it. Modern day commercial farming has met the need to feed billions on the planet, but it has also raised questions about ethical farming and carbon emissions. With a world focused on sustainability and ethics, what is the future for wild harvested meats? Tara Medina is the co-founder of Discovered Wild Foods. Tara, how are you going? Hey, Huck. Doing pretty well. How about yourself? I'm good. Thank you. Now, you launched a brand during the pandemic that's kind of targeted <laughs> towards restaurants. Mm. Um, what were you thinking? Uh, <laughs> we definitely weren't, weren't um, thinking that a pandemic was going to happen this year. I mean, we'd made um, plans to launch the brand in July, August of this year, like about 12 months ago, because really the, the, the focus of our efforts over the last couple of years has been in setting up the supply chain and setting up a, a really great network for harvesting. The brand was always going to come later. So kind of after we'd done all the legwork, um, setting up that network for a few years and it was finally time to launch the brand, we just thought, okay, we've come this far, we've invested, we've just got to keep going and, and adapt. We've got a, a lot of wild animals and a lot of um, non-native wild animals in Australia and that's really been your focus. Can, can you tell us about Discovered Wild Foods? What's the purpose? For sure. Um, so Discovered Wild Foods is a uh, purveyor of wild game meats. We focus on uh, species which are invasive to Australia, um, but we do also um, have kangaroo as well. Really what we're about is sort of retelling the story of, of wild species in Australia. I think that traditionally um, a lot of the attention has been placed on the kangaroo industry or, you know, potentially a bit of wild pigs and, and things like that. But I don't think most um, Australians are really aware of the scale of the problem um, or how tasty the solution can be. <laughs> Um, and yeah, I mean, we're just really trying to start that conversation, um, and open up, open up people's minds to, to trying something that, that has a much broader impact than, than just one meal. What is the scale of the problem that you're talking about? So in, in terms of, um, wild deer to start with, which is really our, our focused, um, launch product to start with. There's estimated to be approximately 1 million wild deer just across Victoria. Wow. Um, yeah. And, and New South, southern New South Wales. And just to give you an idea of how quickly that problem's accelerated, I mean, my co-founder, um, Billy Stoughton, you know, we've had a, a, a friendship for over a decade and he was brought up in the Upper Murray um, in New South Wales and, you know, very much a country boy, raised 
you know, shooting and hunting and getting ducks and, and all that. But hunting deer, especially Samba deer, is quite a recent phenomenon. Like it's not something he remembers from his childhood. Um, it's something that came about more, you know, in his later teens. And, you know, you speak to people and farmers um, throughout the high country of, of Victoria and, and um, southern New South Wales and you hear the same thing. It just wasn't really an issue, you know, 15 years ago. But in the last five years it's become a huge issue. And that's really reflected in in the regulation of it as well. I mean, un, until two years ago, and this was really um, the genesis of Discovered, there was no legal framework to um, commercially harvest wild deer in Victoria. You could only be a recreational hunter. So really anyone who was putting it on a menu in a restaurant either was a hunter or knew someone um, and probably shouldn't have sold it publicly anyway. But, you know, there wasn't really a mechanism for that. Um, but the population started to get so out of control that Prime Safe in Victoria introduced that system about two years ago. And that's really where we started. It's not something that we talk about as a society much, but there is a lot of culling that happens and is needed to happen. But what's, what's some of the impact of that? So, I mean, I think it really varies according to what species and, and what part of Australia um, culling is happening, who's doing it and, and how that's happening. It's a really complex issue. But uh, part of what motivated us is seeing how inefficient some of those efforts could be. And it's not for you know, the lack of intention from from conservationists or from the government. It's just that it's really hard to do. Um, and when they want to go through a program of, for example, a helicopter cull of wild deer in a national park, <laughs> it's, it's, it's really expensive. Um, it's really difficult to scan for and spot deer. The terrain is really challenging. They're on a really strict time limit of how long they can be in the air. Like, you know, you might have one trip go out and, and they only get 10 animals, you know, and there's a particularly restrictive framework around um, our national parks. I mean, it comes from a good place. Like they've, there's essentially rules in place that don't allow commercial harvesters and businesses to come in, take animals and then sell them because they don't want people to be sort of profiting from, um, you know, the natural pr presence in the, the national parks. But it, it's really limiting because there are sort of um, quite large populations there. So the culling issue is complex. Like a lot of a lot of meat is wasted, um, and a lot of taxpayer money is spent trying to address the issue. So how did this idea turn into a business? Can you describe the process of assessing your products? Ah. Oh couple hopes, dreams, and a lot of naivete. <laughs> um, I, essentially, you know, like as I mentioned, my co-founder, like he really grew up country, grew up hunting. Um, I was really lucky to be his friend in the sense that, you know, did not know my way around a gun. Like I'm slowly warming up to using a 22, but but he, he sort of, you know, was always bringing back ducks and, and venison and stuff from from trips um, back home and I got to enjoy that meat and it was delicious and, um, you know, a, a privilege because you're like, this isn't just something I bought at the supermarket. Like my friend actually went to the effort of getting this. He has a story that goes with it. So we'd been enjoying it just as friends and, and amongst friends and family for, for a few years. But once the rules changed in Victoria um, and we sort of heard about that, we thought about it more and more and I suppose it was just 
it started to become like a bit of a light bulb moment. I think that, you know, today in general, we're really problem focused society. Like we like to point out each and everything that is wrong with everything. You know, this is what's going wrong in politics. This is what's going wrong in our systems. This is what's going wrong with the environment. And for once we saw something that could really just be a solution from so many sides, you know, if there was a way to create a business that could commercially scale while deer harvesting would like, okay, so there's an automatic impact for conservation of native habitat and sustainability. There's an automatic impact for human health. Like it's some of the highest protein, lowest fat meat you could eat. There's an automatic impact for supporting farmers in actually paying them to remove deer from their property instead of them having to sort of go to that effort on their own, um, off their own funds and efforts, while at the same time you're making potentially jobs for people in those areas um, to become harvesters. And we're also just creating a story. Like, as you say, not many Australians know about these issues or talk about them. Uh, like I've, 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 I've told people what we're doing recently and, and literally had some friends who I think, you know, are reasonably culinary um, aware say, oh, what is a venison, <laughs> you know? <laughs> And um, and it, it's it's it was exciting, you know. We we just saw it as something that that was going to have positive outcomes on all sides, and, and that's what motivated us. But you know, we we soon came to find out it was going to be a lot more complicated than we originally thought. A little earlier, you mentioned you did launch the brand during the pandemic, but you'd spent you know a good couple of years on the logistics side of things. Can you, can you tell us about what it takes to pull something like this together given our reliance on commercial farming? Sure. I mean, my my co-founder, Billy, was really like very much a pioneer in setting up the network. But essentially we, we came to work with um, a wild game harvesting business, one of Australia's oldest um, wild game resources. They've been around since the 50s. And they had never harvested deer and they'd never had a presence in Victoria. But we thought, you know, there's expertise there, we can work together. And a lot of their business had traditionally been set up around, you know, harvesting kangaroo more in northern New South Wales and and Queensland. So there was no set um, model of how you get deer. And to give you an idea of what that involves, I mean, we're harvesting off private properties. So first of all, you have to build a relationship with a farmer and or a, a significant landowner. And, and that's not a, necessarily an easy conversation. Like you can't just sort of rock up someone's front door and say, hey, can some guys with guns just come and check things out here? <laughs> we might give you some money. Like, you know, it, it's, it's people, especially in the country, can be quite uh, protective of their properties they're not easy to trust strangers and there's a lot of relationship building that needs to happen just to be able to get access to properties so that was kind of part one part two is once you actually do have a landowner on board that's that's sort of happy with you accessing their property you need to have a harvester and because uh wild deer harvesting was a totally new industry in victoria there was no sort of existing base of, you know, contractor harvesters who had that expertise. There are a lot of guys who love to hunt recreationally. There are a lot of guys who were farmers and were used to controlling deer on their own properties. And there were people who had previously, you know, culled or harvested kangaroo and other species. But the the type of deer that we were after that were really 
um, launched as our first product line, a samba deer. And they are a species of deer that's originally from India and they are enormous. <laughs> so a, a lot of the deer that people hunt recreationally in, in New South Wales and further north are, are fallow or chital deer and, you know, can average about 40 kilos it's the kind of thing that you know the the recreational hunter could could go on on a stalk out by himself get one and carry it back over his shoulder but a samba deer i mean like a mature bull can be up to 250 kilos wow. so so these harvesters um that are going out you know um to to find samba on their own 100% of the time um up incredibly rugged terrain in in the high country of Victoria and, and southern New South Wales, um, they they've got an absolute task ahead of themselves. You know, they might take an animal and just the process of having to retrieve it. You know, the kind of terrain they're trying to get through, the accessibility by vehicles, the winch systems, and things they have to have in place are, are really serious. So, it was a process of discovery for us as well as potential harvesters figuring out all this stuff and 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 developing the right um tools and techniques for doing it um and also making sure that the people that we were choosing to work with were like-minded you know um i think there's there's been historically you know a bit of stigma in the harvesting industry and the culling industry um about ethics and like fundamentally for Billy and I, if we were going to set up a business that we saw as proposing solutions, we couldn't drop the ball when it came to harvesting and ethical harvesting. It couldn't just be about, oh, a sustainable product, you know, like a high-quality meat, something tasty and healthy. It had to have been acquired in a way that we are also proud of because like so many people, um, you know, for a long time but especially in the last decade, we're becoming more aware of where our food comes from and what that means, you know. Um, everything really is linked and there's a lot of confusion out there in terminology. I, I think as, you know, eaters, we, we want to do the right thing. We want to do make better choices. But it's really hard because the terminology is is not fixed. You know, you think that you need to buy organic or you need to buy free range or you need to buy regeneratively farmed but what does that really mean you know and if you are a meat eater in particular like stress and, and animal stress it's it's not just an emotional concept like it's very much a biological concept and if we're going to be like you know magnanimous in the way that we we consume meat we also have to give it a, 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 the right death to be honest, because you could have the most beautiful, you know, pasture-raised, organic, you know, small family-farmed pork or, or beef, but if those last moments um, before it's been processed are stressful, that's going to carry through into the quality of the meat afterwards. And that includes things like, you know, live transport, the, the modern abattoir system and, and access to those systems. Traditionally, a lot of hunters butcher their deer in the field. What's the process for you? So we have sort of a hybrid model um, in that they're obviously slaughtered in the field. They're partially butchered, so um, they're eviscerated 
the gut bags removed, anything that could sort of contaminate the meat and be dangerous in that sense is removed in the field. But the pluck, so so lungs, heart, um, liver retained, and then the animals are transported back. But along the way, both before a harvester selects an animal, after he's um, harvested an animal, before he transported, there's a lot of sort of health and safety checks and they have to undergo quite a rigorous training process on wild game harvesting to make sure that only healthy and prime animals actually make it back to the facility. As you mentioned, there's, there is a lot of confusion about the terminology and also all the different farming techniques and the impact on the animal and also the eating quality. Why is it so ethical and sustainable to be um, capturing wild animals? So I suppose there's there's two main aspects to it to me. Um, one is like even the most hardcore <laughs> vegan conservationist in Australia who's concerned with native habitat would want these animals removed. If there was a button they could press where, you know, all one million deer in Victoria sort of drop dead tomorrow, they would press it. So if that's the case and that's the best fundamental ecological outcome we could hope for, like how dare we waste that meat? You know what I mean? I don't think that you could consider that a sustainable outcome to just sort of remove something from a system that's quite a large thing to remove and not use it. You know, I think that as humans we're, we're really good at thinking we're smarter than nature, you know, <laughs> whether it's the way we use pesticides or the way we treat things like blackberry, like there's, there's, there's always something we're trying to layer on top um, rather than really looking at the problem as the solution. And that's one aspect of it. it. It's purely from like a conserving, you know, native habitats and, and native flora and fauna perspective. Um, the other aspect in terms of ethics, I suppose, is the harvesting process, you know. I mean, these animals have never, ever been coerced in their lives. You know, they have not had a controlled moment. They are not fenced in. They're not fed a strict diet. They're not told when they can mate, they're just not coerced. And, you know, to be really blunt, they have a noble death <laughs> in the sense that they they are blissfully unaware um, of anything that could happen. You know, they're not corralled and herded and staged and transported and staged again one by one into an abattoir. They are one minute eating grass on the side of a mountain the next minute no longer conscious <laughs> because the way that the harvesting process works is it has to be as stealthy as possible. They're not easy animals to get and a professional harvester is most likely going to be completely under the cover of darkness using infrared technology, sometimes even drones, to scope out an animal. Wow. And we'll, we'll then need to take it legally and by our own sort of standards that we've put in place for harvesting be taken by a single headshot. So it's, it's really like the most instant sort of thing you could ask for. Um, and I just think like from, a, from people who are increasingly concerned about eating meat because they don't like the concept of death, to me it's one of the best deaths you could ask for. And I mean, whether you 
eat plant-based or, or you, you are a carnivore, I'm, like there is no life without death. So if we're going to confront that head on, we need to be um, like noble in the way we approach that concept of death, whether we're harvesting grain or, or meat. Given that you're providing a solution to a pretty major problem, has there been any support from the government or national parks for the business? Not as yet. I mean, it is challenging sort of as I mentioned before, there are there are some fundamental sort of charter-based issues as to what our national parks will allow in terms of industry entering and, and conducting operations in a national park. So while that that is definitely an opportunity space to help with conservation efforts and and harvest more animals. It's not something um, we've had full support on yet because it is complex. You launched during the pandemic and it's a product that is more often eaten in restaurants and targeted towards them. What's it been like launching during this period with the industry and the shape that it's in? (laughs) Um, I don't – yeah, it's been challenging and I I don't think there's anyone – alive on the face of the earth who who hasn't had a challenge in 2020. So at least we're in the same boat as most people in that sense. But we just have come to terms with the fact that we are committed to what we're doing. We believe in what we're doing and the pandemic's just making us adapt and pivot and take it slower. You know, it's actually been interesting um, to have this kind of complexity added because traditionally we would have looked to have a more traditional launch like we would have had some great events in in Melbourne Sydney and Canberra like my co-founder Billy also runs a a really great like Australian botanical oriented bar in in Melbourne which is obviously (laughs) shut at the moment but um we would have focused on all the in-person stuff you know getting in front of people telling the story eating delicious food um and having a very tactile um, introduction to chefs and restaurants and and foodies but instead everything's been remote Um, and that's been interesting because we're we're reaching out to people we've never met whose phone numbers we don't have often through social media or through a friend of a friend or as a cold email and saying hey we think you're a really amazing chef we know your restaurant's shut do you want to try this product we just want some honest feedback and that's actually been a really sort of helpful process that's helped us refine, you know, what applications like the venison has, like how it should be used, what kind of people like about it, what's challenging about it. And I think we probably would have skipped that part um, if there hadn't been a pandemic. So that kind of soft, soft contact and relationship building has been really amazing. And at the same time, I mean, we've been doing stuff I think a lot of other food businesses have done, um, you know, switching to thinking about selling direct online and and things like that. But it is challenging. I mean, most Australians don't eat venison, to be honest. Um, they, they may have tried it once or twice in a restaurant or they may have tried it overseas. But because we we don't have a strong legacy of hunting deer and and really eating that seasonally, like maybe you would see in in Europe or America. For a lot of people, it's it's new. And trying to convince someone who's never tried it to order like a 10-kilo box of frozen meat on a website (laughs) is a bit of a proposition, you know. 
So we're slowly kind of just figuring, figuring out how to do that well. Um, and we'll be launching, you know, direct online sales next week. Um, we're looking at, um, partnering with, with butchers more like going to start working with Huggins Organics in, in Melbourne to launch, um, retail portions of, of venison starting from October. So, you know, it's slow and it's kind of been one thing after another, like it was, it, it was initially just challenging that the restaurant industry shut down and then it was challenging that the border shut because we're really a border-focused business. Like our facility is there, a lot of the harvestings around the border. We had staff living on either side. Some got trapped, wow. some, some didn't. So it, it, it has been one thing after another, but I feel like after so many, you know, hiccups, you kind of um, – like become a bit numb to it, I guess, the, to at least the shock factor of it, and you just keep going. As you say, venison isn't something that we're used to eating in Australia and there's many people that haven't tried it before. What What is Samba deer like to eat and what's the best way to cook it? Oof, it's a broad question. <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't know that there's a best way because my answer would change depending on the weather. Um, and what I probably ate the day before, but <laughs> Samba actually as, as, um, as a species, are quite different to, um, fallow deer or, or chital deer and red deer, which, which is what people's first venison experience tends to be because that's a lot of, um, what the farmed venison industry focuses on. Samba, um, have never been domesticated or farmed. Uh, they are a exclusively wild species. And because they are such large animals um, that are over, like traveling such rigorous terrain and have that real alpine lifestyle, they uh, have a really high um, bone to muscle ratio. So, and because they're such large animals, you're really ending up with a taste, texture, and cut profile that is closer to beef. Um, I wouldn't say it has a beefy taste, but it has a much less gamey taste. Um, and especially like your eye fillets and, and back straps, sirloins are really, really tender and much closer to kind of like a prime steak. So if you're in the mood for steak, <laughs> I would definitely say you can't go astray with a really simple tenderloin or back strap, just seared olive oil, salt and pepper. Don't make it complex and let it speak for itself. But, um, you know, we've seen a lot of chefs that we've been sending product to doing fancy things with the primals as well. It goes really well in a tartar. Um, but personally, and especially because winter is really only just starting to cool off, I've been just loving braises. The shanks are the best shanks you'll ever eat in your life. Like <laughs> they're, they are absolutely enormous. Each shank is a, uh, definitely about double the size of a, a standard lamb shank and you just get so much more so much more marrow and, you know, really, really beautiful for a slow cook. Wow. Well, it's a cold day in here in Canberra at the moment, so um, you're making me hungry. Oh, well, we'll send you some shanks. <laughs> <laughs> uh, with the, well, this is your um, first product with the brand, but is there other species that you're targeting that we may see in the future? Yeah, we definitely are. It's just that after the amount of sort of work that we put in to set up the harvesting network. Um, venison is definitely just our focus for the first phase of our business, but we can open up um, wild goat, wild boar, um, 
potentially rabbit, wow. wallaby, kangaroo. It's more just that I think venison could potentially be the like gateway game meat. <laughs> Um, in the sense that, you know, a lot, a lot of like the barriers that we, we butt up against when we're having conversations and tastings with people, even if they're just friends is they automatically think game, they think gamey, they think kangaroo, they think tough and difficult to cook with and complex and strong taste. And I think that pretty much all of those preconceptions can be broken down with the right techniques and a bit more of an open mind and venison specifically it's it's just easier to do those things um it's less gamey it's bigger muscles it's all recipe base is essentially very similar to to beef or lamb it's with some slight adaptations to like cooking times but it's it's easily substitutable whereas you know people hear about kangaroo or or wild boar and and they sort of raise an eyebrow more but i think it's kind of going to become a replicatable process you know like once people realize oh venison's really just another red meat then it's like oh well wild boar's just another pork and you know wild goats just another red meat i mean they're all really delicious i think it's just about breaking down people's preconceptions of of what they might taste like because we, we definitely see some raised eyebrows and we're always happy to to prove people wrong. During the experience of the last couple of years of setting up this business and the logistics, has it changed your perceptions of, of eating meat? Yeah, it has. I mean, it's challenged me to to really comply with um, the aspirations that I think a lot of us have to consistently think about where our food comes from, you know. I mean, it's always been funny to think that when it comes to things like wine in the food industry, we think that that's important enough that there will be a dedicated person in a restaurant to talk to you about it and tell you, you know, the terroir and, and the provenance of every bottle and every producer but when it comes to meat and even vegetables, like how often do you see a menu say where it came from, you know, or um, who the producer was or what, year, what, what date it came from? Like it, it's just not something we place focus on. And um, starting this business in particular has definitely made me focus on staying true to that and challenging myself that, oh, if I didn't make it to, you know, farmer's market today, then I have to make the extra effort to go to this place tomorrow where I know the guy's sourcing his produce from here, you know? We've had a pretty turbulent 2020 and even just before that with the bushfires as well and it's put put a real focus on how we're treating the planet and, and our own diets. Do you, how do you see moving forward beyond covid uh, our habits in regards to the production of food and the consumption of food? Well, uh, yeah, one of the the silver linings, I suppose, is that it's it's placed a lot of attention on industrialised food systems um, and the limitations of that. You know, I mean, a really common issue that's come up around the world is uh, COVID popping up substantially in the meat processing industry. Because a lot of what's happened, I mean, especially in the United States, is that a very small group of multinational companies has come to control 
the abattoir industry and whether you're a smaller producer or, or a large-scale producer, there's very few avenues for you to actually get your animals processed. So that kind of narrowing of the field, you know, which I think is a common theme throughout the food industry, if you look at um, vegetable fruit and vegetable farming, like there are, there are certain varieties which organic producers and small-scale producers won't even touch. Like I think you – was speaking to Block 11 Organics the other day and he's like, there's four companies in Australia who control our supply of celery. So what's, what's the sort of motivation there for anyone who's trying to do it right to grow celery? There's no way they can ever compete on the price. So to answer your question in a really long-winded way, I mean a lot of attention is now placed on our food system and I think it's the time for people to start proposing solutions because we can be such a problem-focused society and we really need to shift to being a solution-focused society. Like everyone wants to do the right thing with their food. They, they want to eat the, in ways that have a positive impact on our environment and support the right producers. But I think we need to get consistent about how you do that, about what the language is, about what the coding is, because there's a lot of grey areas. You know, there, there are so-called farmer's markets where there are, produ- there are stalls selling produce that they've bought from a wholesaler, you know. And I think we've made some efforts to remedy that, you know, tradition, like really high-quality farmer's markets don't allow that to happen. They register producers correctly. And it's, but it's the same with food labelling, you know. You see food <laughs> labelled natural <laughs> or <laughs> sustainable, but there isn't really, you know, high levels of regulation of the use of those terms. And even with organic, you see sort of gray areas where something might be certified organic, but they can still use pesticides. So there there's kind of needs to be like two sides to the effort. There needs to be a continued desire from your average person who's just eating food on a day-to-day basis to rigorously question where they're acquiring food from. But at the same time, like producers and the government and the regulatory sort of environment needs to change to be able to help consumers make those choices more easily. It's been a really challenging time and you've launched a product that is really solving a, solving a problem and also um, raising concerns in other areas or alerting people to these concerns. What do you hope um, comes forward in the next sort of year in the food industry and and what sort of positives can you take from this time? Um, The next year in the food industry, I mean, I'd love to see just an increased focus on ingredients rather than outcomes, (laughs) you know. I mean, I'm sure you've seen yourself many different food trends come and go and we love to focus on, you know, what's hot right now in terms of like a style of cooking or, um, you know, a certain dish. Like throughout COVID, I think I've seen a million things about lasagna because everyone just wants comfort food right now. (laughs) But, you know, it would be amazing to see a focus on ingredients, whether it's a particular ingredient or a particular method of producing that ingredient. You know, there is slowly starting to be a much bigger conversation about regenerative agriculture and, you know, like amazing people like – Lauren Grant from Feather and Bone in in Sydney, the books that they've put out, just making people really question what it is to be an ethical eater 
Um, I, I'd love to see that conversation grow even more um, because we, we do tend to focus on, you know, the visual and the sensory experience of eating. But if we actually want to make a difference, we need to think about the practical means of production and how those sensory experiences are created. Well, that's amazing. Tara, you um, have done a pretty amazing thing and I know your brand has just started, but um, I really hope to see it blossom over the next couple of years. Um, really loved having your story um, shared on Deep in the Weeds today. Please keep in touch and, um, and we'll talk again soon. Definitely. Thanks so much. This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Stay tuned as we share the stories of Australia's HOSPO community, suppliers and producers in search of hope during this pandemic. Special thanks to executive producer Rob Locke for making this all happen. Follow us on Instagram at Deep in the Weeds Podcast or email us at podcast at deepintheweeds.com.au. Stay safe and be well.